Good morning, church, and happy new year. Hey, if you got a Bible, grab it. Go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 are going to be our passage for today. Cannot wait to dive in with you guys on this. I've been looking forward to Hebrews, chapter 12, since we started the book of Hebrews about 73 weeks ago, and I cannot wait to dive into it with you guys. If you're new here at MCC, what we do here and what we've been doing for the course of probably the last couple of years is just taking a book of the Bible and then going through it word by word, verse by verse. And so right now, we as a church have gotten to Hebrews, chapter 12, as we've been navigating through that. I'm going to recap a little bit after I read this passage and pray for us, but uh, so glad you're here today. Love to have a chance to connect with you. You can fill out that next step card in that chair back pocket in front of you. And I'd love to meet you back there at the welcome table. And if you don't want to meet, that's fine. You can put that in one of those boxes back there in the back and we'll be in touch later on this week. All right. Y'all all there? All right. If you're not, say hold up. All right. We're ready then. Hebrews 12 verses one and two. This is the word of God. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, church. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this encouragement to run this race that has been marked out for us. And we thank you for the admonition to look to Jesus today. I pray that my preaching would do, if nothing else, that very thing only. By the words I say, your people would look to you. The ones who have been looking to you and may have gotten distracted, that they would lock eyes once again. Those who have never seen you for who, they, who you really are, that they would maybe even today for the very first time look to you to see you as a loving, kind Savior. That they would see you as one who uh, does not want anything from them, does not ask them to do anything special today, but ask them to humbly submit to your will and your way to see you as Lord, Savior, one willing to give their life for them. And Jesus, I pray that having leaned into this passage and having seen how it shows us the gospel, that every one of us today would walk out of here different, holier, more committed, more fervent, more humble, more like the church this world needs to see. In your name, amen. So if I had to recap the whole book of Hebrews in three words up to this point of all of what we've dug into, I would just say, Jesus is greater. To put it in a big theological word, the whole book of Hebrews is to show us, to show the original readers and us as the readers now, the supremacy of Christ, how Christ is supreme, how everything that was in the Old Testament, that was in the the Old Covenant, that all those things are now pointing and find their completion in Jesus. So we've kind of taglined this series of Hebrews is Jesus's way to a truer and greater life. And that's the life we believe that God has for you. It's a belief that the life that God is wanting to invite us into. And I hope that we can navigate through that together. Where we're at in chapter 12 is coming off of, obviously, chapter 11. Let me give you a little recap on chapter 11. Chapter 11, what this pastor to the church is doing is he knows that his congregation is going to be fighting this tension to when things get hard in life to let go of Jesus and to drift back into things that they used to know, the things that used to give them comfort and security. 
we have some of the same problems. And so what he does is he explains to them what faith is. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the confidence of things not seen. And he makes it very clear. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then from there, what he does in chapter 11 is kind of referred to as the hall of faith is he lists out all of these Old Testament characters and heroes that exemplify what real faith is. This hope of confidence in things that are to come, this belief that God is going to come through on our behalf. He talks about guys like Noah and Abraham and Moses. And, and these guys are people who saw God move on their behalf because they put faith and put a weight that rested upon that God. And he did come through on their behalf. Now, about halfway through chapter 11, he kind of turns this corner and not into just these people who their faith allowed God to deliver them out of really bad circumstances. But then he starts talking about these certain group of people who God didn't pull out of terrible circumstances, but God by their faith delivered them through. We all want God to get us out of stuff that's rough. What he does in this passage, he says, sometimes what God will do is not pull you out, but God will give you the faith to withstand and persevere no matter how much hell on earth you may face. You can still hold fast to the promise that heaven is coming. And this is on the coattails that we get chapter 12. Now, before we dive into chapter 12, you actually need to see what's at the very end of chapter 11. So let's, let's go there together. I didn't read it, but I want to show it to you here. So he's just got through going through all this giant list of heroes of faith, the, the, the stories that are on repeat down in children's ministry, your, your Noah's, your Moses's, your David, all those are what he lists out for these people. And he says, all these, he's talking about those guys, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us. Now listen, we hear this and we don't really understand how huge the implications of those words right there are. If you're in the living room, the first time that the book of Hebrews, it's really a letter, is getting written to you, you're hearing that going, hold up. So you're telling me that something better is coming to me than, than being one of the Israelites standing in the middle of the Red Sea and having it look like two skyscrapers on both sides of you? That something is coming to me that I'm going to get a better promise than seeing the walls of Jericho fall down? That I'm going to get a better promise than rocking and rolling on a boat after it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and my family just happened to be the ones who were saved? You're going to give me something better? So if you're in the room there, you're going, hold up. That's important. I, I better figure out what in the world this is. He says, they didn't receive what was promised since God had provided something better, better than all of those things for us. That apart from us, they, all those people who experienced all those things and experienced all those promises of God should not be made perfect. So the big question that we've got to see when we get through verses 39 and 40 is what is this thing we're talking about? That's better than watching God come through in all these miraculous ways. What is this thing? It's not a thing. It's a person. It's a man named Jesus. And it's what he came to institute. See, every one of those men and women that are listed in chapter 11, they lived and existed by faith in what is called the old covenant. The old covenant was based on law. If I keep the law, I'm good with God. If I don't keep the law, not so much. And yearly, I have to sacrifice an animal and that doesn't deal with my sins. It takes care of them from a year. 
And what the pastor to the church in Hebrews is now explaining, is continuing to explain to them, is now the reason we are being offered something better is we're not under this old covenant anymore that is based on law. Now in Jesus, we're under this thing called the new covenant that's based on love where Jesus himself became the high priest and the sacrificial lamb, the sacrificer and the sacrifice. Now we don't need an altar anymore. We don't need a temple anymore. His life given for us upon the cross is the final altar. And he is the great high priest who intercedes for us, who knows exactly what it's like to be us. He says, now, though these great stories of Noah and Moses and Abraham and all these Bible characters that we come to know and love, what he says to this church as he's talking to them is friends, family, now the story is being written with your names. And you, you actually have something better than they could have ever wanted. Because of Christ, you have the indwelling of God, not around you, not working on behalf of you, not a God you're following by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by night, but you have God in your chest. If you're in him, then he's in you. He says, now we're a part of this grand story. So that's how he ends chapter 11. He turns the corner to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is awesome because you can tell by how much yellow I put in here. Uh, I really like chapter 12. It's good. There's going to be a lot of yellow. So in light of all of that, he says, therefore, now he's going to get into their application because of all this. Here's what we need to do. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we got to unpack this because what the pastor of the church knows is the people in his congregation, they have something in common with you. They have something in common with me. They're down here on this planet, living in the tension between running after the call that Jesus has placed on their life and just drifting through life, just going through the motions. He knows that these people have now come to put this early trust and faith and hope in Jesus. They've kind of had that post-camp high feeling. Middle school teenagers, you know what I'm talking about. You go to camp, everybody's crying, blowing boogers everywhere, and I'm never going to sin again. Yes, Lord. Yeah, I'm going to send me to Kenya, whatever. Like that moment, they've all had that, and then they've gone back to reality, and then stuff has kind of gotten real again, okay? What he knows is they're going to have this propensity to drift away from the love that they have for Christ instead of running after the Jesus who hopefully he's done 11 chapters worth of explaining who he really is. So let's kind of walk through and unpack this best we can. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's referencing back to chapter 11 there. Some people teach this passage and it's, I think, incorrect that what this means is when he's saying we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses that like Moses and Abraham and Noah, they're just up in the heavenly Colosseum looking down and clapping when you do good stuff, which that sounds great. But what about when we do really stupid stuff? Like it kind of makes me nervous to think that Noah, a guy who was pretty intense or Moses, a guy who killed people is watching me do dumb things down here. All right, let's just pause and go. That's not what this passage means. He's not saying that there are just these windows in the corridors of heaven and they're just looking down on us, cheering us on, and they're witnessing everything that we're doing down here. It's more so to the fact that their testimony bears witness to us that this faith we should put in our Father 
is sufficient. That as God came through for them over and over and over again, time and time again, that he will do the same thing for us and their lives bear witness to that fact, not that they are witnessing to us. And here's the good news. You don't need Moses, Noah, David, Abraham, Rahab, Gideon, any of those people looking down on you to provide you comfort. Here's something too. That notion is not anywhere in scripture. And I know we go to funerals and it gives us some peace to think that even our dead loved ones who have gone hopefully on into heaven are looking down on us and offering us encouragement and, and hope and peace. And again, I would just say that sounds nice at a funeral and it may give us some peace in our heart, but that's just not biblical. Nothing in here shows that there's, there's folks just checking us out down here. And again, like how would my grandma, you know, how, how would my great grandma know when's a good time to check on Trent? Like, does she just have to be, oh, nope, not now. Oh gosh, didn't want to see that. Like, how do they know, <laughs> right? <laughs> and he, here's why, and I know I, what I'm not saying is don't lean on the faith and the love and the fervency that you saw in somebody who's gone into heaven. Oh yeah, remember who they were. Remember what they did for you. Remember the sacrifices they made. Remember how their faith inspires you, but you don't need them to look down from heaven and to encourage you because as Jesus says in the gospel of John, if you love the father and you love me and you keep our words, me and the father, we come and make a home in you. You don't need some surveillance camera from a dead loved one. You've got God the Father, and God, the Son, inside of you, providing enough courage. Maybe you, sometimes you've missed out on some of that courage because you're going, Meemaw! <laughs> and meanwhile, Jesus and God are inside of you going, <clears throat> Hello, we're here. Not, there ain't nobody up there. We're not letting them see what's going on down here. This is a mess. All right, moving on. Glad we all got that. Now, this is where this passage gets confusing because as Americans, we like to read Scripture, and specifically scripture was written to, a, a, in this case, a Jewish audience, the way we like things to be read to us, where A precedes B, and then B leads to C, and D and E and F. And we like to read those things in order, and especially when we hit passages of scriptures where there are imperatives, or things that's telling us to do, we like to take those things and go, okay, I'll do this, and this, and this. Sometimes, let's just all raise our hands on this, if we're honest, we wish the Bible was less complicated, right? Well, yeah, well, yeah, it'd be nice if it just it was simple. And sometimes we've had these moments where God, where we're just like, God, just tell me what to do. And you come to a passage like this, and there are some, just some things where you're told what to do. What are some of the imperatives or the things that you're told to do in this passage? You don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure out. You can have your understanding, all of our understanding of scripture. What are some of those things? Shout them out. Lay aside every weight. There's one. Look to Jesus. All right. That was a good one. Run. All right. There's three. Three right off the bat that we're supposed to do. Now, here's, here's where this thing gets complicated. We go, well, which one do I do first? Or what's the order? And the confusing thing about scripture sometimes is we come to these passages and we see stuff in order and we go, okay, that's the order I do it. I, run, I lay aside some things, I run, then I look to Jesus. But if you look at this passage, this is what's special. Let's, let's, let's read it slow. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now look what's not right here. And then looking to Jesus. 
this looking to Jesus implies that the entirety of me laying aside weight and sin and the entirety of me running with endurance is contingent upon me looking to Jesus. I went back in my own notes to see the last time I preached this passage and boy, oh boy, did I get it wrong. Luckily, it was not to this congregation. It was to a different one. So you dodged that bullet, okay? (laughs) I preached the entire message about running. Running, endurance, stripping off weight, running, 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 running. And there's very little for me about looking. And friend, I'm here to tell you that this passage is not primarily about running. You will miss all the rest of chapter 12 if you think about running. The key here is in looking, seeing Jesus. It's eyes locked with Jesus, then I'm stripping this stuff off. It's eyes locked with Jesus, then I'm running with endurance. It starts with looking. So if you're going to take notes and kind of figure out how you can run the best race this year, as you try to follow after Jesus, the key, step one is look to Jesus. And this step is not like building Ikea furniture where I did this. Now move on to the next one. This is a step that permeates the rest of them that I do this. I start doing this and I stay doing this. I start looking to Jesus and I stay looking to Jesus. I look to Jesus as my faith begins. I look to Jesus when I have doubts. I look to Jesus when I get married. I look to Jesus when I have kids. I look to Jesus in my fear. I look to Jesus in my doubts. I look to Jesus as I raise these kids up. I look to Jesus as I'm coming to the end of my life. I look to Jesus when I die. And then when I cross over from this life to the next, I don't just have to look to Jesus. I can look at Jesus. And I see this Jesus who has sustained me for my earthly days and from this moment forward will sustain me forevermore. I look to Jesus. It starts with looking at him and then it stays looking to him in the midst of highs, in the midst of lows, in the midst of doubt, in the midst of depression, in the midst of mountaintop moments in my life. My eyes stay locked on Jesus. You want to run? Look to Jesus. You want to finish well? Look to Jesus. Last week we said, what has your attention will determine your direction. And this pastor proves that point very clearly here. He makes it apparent as he's getting ready to tell this church, chapter 12 and 13, it's really when he starts to tell them what to do. He spent 11 chapters telling them who Jesus is. Now he's going to go, okay, because of that, here's what you need to do. Here's what we got to do. So step one is look to Jesus. After we look to Jesus, We can't just go, oh, there he is. Because what's hard about life down here on planet Earth is sometimes we get Jesus twisted. We get a lot of Jesus and then some conservatism. We get a little bit of Jesus and then some liberal stuff. We get a lot of Jesus and then some capitalism. We can mix Jesus with a lot of other stuff down here. We get a Southern Jesus. We get an urban Jesus. Got all sorts of different Jesuses down here. This is why we have to be really careful that we're really seeing Jesus. Not black Jesus, not white Jesus, not Hispanic Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. The real one. The one that's in here. Not filtered Jesus. 100 proof Jesus. We have to look to and see Jesus. Now, I think the author understands that it's not enough to just go look to Jesus, that he's got to give them clues about what aspects of 
who Jesus is and what Jesus has done are critical for us to see and hone in on that will give us the encouragement to be enduring people who run the race set out for us. So he starts out by going, look to Jesus. Then the next thing he wants you to understand is who he is. Look at where he breaks this down. So first step, I gotta look to Jesus. When I'm looking at him, I see who he is. Identity comes before activity. I look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Two words that are huge in understanding Jesus' identity. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. The founder and perfecter. That word founder comes from the Greek word archegos, which is where we get our words for archetype. It means leader or pioneer, the one who sets out to blaze the trail for us. He is the leader, the beginner, the author, the father, if you will, of our faith. He is the one who founds it. He is the one on whom our faith is grounded because he's the one who this whole idea of scoundrels like me and you entering into this family with him and God came from. He's the founder of this faith. And he is the one who founded this faith when he came from heaven to earth down here and was found in the form of a human being. Just like me and you. Lived the life that we should have lived and then died the death that we should have died so that we could have the eternal life that we never deserved. That's what all of Hebrews 3 is about. That we do not have a great high priest in Jesus who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But in Jesus, we have a great high priest who was tempted in every way, yet remained without sin. He is the founder of our faith. Now, what's awesome is God doesn't start anything without having already ended it. So he is both the founder and the finisher. He is the founder and the perfecter. When it says that he is the protect, uh, or the perfecter of our faith, what that means is he is the one who brought it to his fullness and completion. This is why Jesus is there on the cross in the moment where he gives up his human life here on earth. He screams out, what words? It is finished. I am the finisher. And I have finished it in perfection. Now, once the author has us see who Jesus is. And again, seeing who Jesus is, is mission critical for stripping off the weight and running the race. Once he has us see who Jesus is, then he goes, okay, now that you've seen who he is, I need you to see what he has done. So I look to Jesus, I see who he is, and I see what he has done. He lays this right there in the passage. This is where you kind of almost have to read sometimes, especially... Um, stuff that's written to a Jewish audience. Uh, Paul also writes like this. Paul was a, fair, uh, Paul was a Pharisee, so, so he wrote things. If you go through Ephesians, you, you just, it sounds like they just roll out this, they, they, they pack this bomb full of all these amazing things of God, and then they write in a way where it just seems like the entire thing explodes, and you've got to kind of, as the reader, put all these pieces together to figure out what in the world they mean. And this is awesome. This is why you can chew and meditate on God's word for hours and hours to come to this place where you figure out what it means. So he says, if you're going to see Jesus, you have to see who he is. And you also have to see what he has done, what he has done. And he lays this out in the back half of verse two. What has Jesus done? There's two things he talks about here. First thing that Jesus has done is that for the joy set before him, here's what he did. He endured the cross. Second thing, despising the shame 
And now, the second thing, he is seated at the right hand of God. So two things. We saw what Jesus is, founder and perfecter. Two things now that we see that Jesus has done is he is for the joy set before him, endured the cross, and he is seated at the right hand of God. Let's unpack this. These two words, joy and cross, they are not supposed to go together. But it says Jesus for the joy set before him endured the cross, which we should read that. If you're reading in your Bible, you should take notes on it. The question you should ask is what was that joy? I'll take you a step further. Who was that joy? Now, sometimes, and this was probably in the bad message that I preached on this. You come to a passage like this and you say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy, church? It was you. You were his joy. Susan there, you're his joy. Billy Bob over there, you're his joy. Gene, you're, you're his joy. Joy, you're his joy. We got to, there's some joys here, right? right? So like we, we hear that and that makes us feel so warm inside to know that when Jesus was on the cross, he was thinking about me, willing to go through this for me, that he would love me so much that he would take upon himself so much pain because he knew there would be joy in making a pathway for anyone who would come after him and put their faith and trust in him to be connected back to his father. Now listen, that for sure is part of his joy. But to make that all of his joy, that is blasphemy. It is part B of the main reason. The main reason that Jesus had joy set before him to endure the cross was to glorify the Father. Yes, he loves you a whole lot, but the love that he has for you is dictated by and directly from the love that he has for his Father. That's why in the garden, he's literally on his hands and he's sweating drops of blood going, Father, if there's any other way for this cup to not be mine and to pass from me, let it be. But not my will be done, your will be done. Jesus' great joy in going to and enduring the cross is, Father, it brings me great, 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 great joy to glorify, to magnify, to obey you. And in so doing, that obedient act, of going to the cross, of giving his life, for God's children. Now, we are a direct result of that. This amazing combination of a father who so loved the son that he was willing to sacrifice him and a son who is so in tune with that father's love that he's willing to go to unimaginable length to do that father's will down here on earth shows us where our joy should come from. Not in the fact that he just loved me, little old me, so much. Yes, he did, for sure. Do not forget that. But if you make the crucifixion of our Savior about how much he loved you only, you have written a you-centered gospel, and it will not save you. Only a God-centered one will. He went to that cross to obey his Father because his Father loved him enough to kill him for you and for me. That's what he did. Part one. Now part two, this is awesome. He didn't stay dead. Part two that's awesome is this Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. He is humbled to the lowest of low. God exalts him to the highest of high. That's Philippians 2, 6 to 11. He, being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, let go of that, humbled himself to the very nature of a slave and a servant. Therefore, God has now exalted him to the highest high. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow.
and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the founder and perfecter. What he has done is for the joy set before him, endured the cross. That word endured in the Greek, it is a compound word that means remain under. He remained under. He didn't spin out. He didn't toss it off. He remained under the cross. And now he is seated at the right hand of God. To which, this should bring some encouragement too. What, okay, <clears throat> we talked this when we were in Ephesians and when we were in, I think, chapter 10 of Hebrews. Sometimes we get this image of Jesus. Okay, Jesus is seated at the cross. And all right, well, he's just looking down here, me, watching me mess up and do stupid stuff and hate traffic and spend too much money and yell at kids. Like he's just seeing all of this. And he's just up there seeing it. And I know for sure he ain't happy with me right now. And some of you are here today because you're like, I know if Jesus saw 2023, he'd for sure want me to be in church in 2024. In the book of Hebrews, we happen to be in, there's this passage and I think it's in 1045, I may be wrong. Um, it talks about what Jesus is doing on the throne. It says, first of all, he's able to save to the uttermost, which means there's no length that your sin could go that could outpace or outrace him. And then two, it says he always lives to make intercession for them. So what is he doing while he's seated? He's not sitting up there going, oh, there they go again. So dumb. Like, that's not what he's doing. Now, he may, you know, he may think that's a dumb idea. But what he's doing is going, oh, that's so dumb. Father, um, forgive him. That's, I, I, you know, you know I, I, I died to forgive that. I forgive them. He's making intercession. Let's send somebody down there to help them with that, please. <laughs> yeah, let's let them show up. For some reason, like, you know, get, them, get them consistently in a small group. He's living to make intercession. That's what he's doing for you right now. So in, in a little while, when we take communion, what you will enter into is what we refer to as intercessory prayer. But what I want you to know today, no matter who you are, where you're from, there, before you woke up this morning, he was already interceding for you. He ain't never stopped. And now I don't know how he does that for all of us plus everybody else on planet earth at the same exact time. He's God, all right? That's what he does. He's just living to make intercession for you. And what's so magical about prayer, so amazing about prayer is that's how you tap into what's already happening. Some, for some reason, we just neglect it like crazy. We don't pray. This is a miraculous moment where Jesus is already interceding for you and you get to tap in. It's like, the father and the son are on a phone call together. And remember, they live in you. You get to pick up that third line and just listen in and get in on the conversation. And look, don't, sometimes you can pick it up and just be that one person mouth breathing on the, on the line where everybody can hear. They're fine with you being on the line. But look, add to the conversation. Listen. That's what intercession is all about. He lives to intercede for you. All right. So we've looked at Jesus. We've seen who he is. We've seen what he's done. He is the author and perfecter. He is the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He seeth the right hand of, God, of Christ. Now, this is where I preached it wrong the entire last time. Now and only now do we start talking about what we do. Now we lay aside weight and sin. If you start here, you fail. 
How many of <laughs> everybody who listened to that last message, they probably walked out on Monday and they started here and shame on me, they failed. I've tried to do this. Oh, I got to do a better year. I got to get right. I know there's some things that are wrong. Let me just lay all them aside. Let me get all this stuff off of me. This habit, this sin, this mistake, this time waster, whatever it is. Let me just lay all this aside. And I toss it all to the ground while not looking to Jesus, not seeing who he is, while not seeing what he's done. And within two weeks, I'd pick that thing back up and put it right back on. Yeah, that happened. So what he says is since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin. Uh-oh, looks like he's introducing a new category here. Not just sin. It didn't just say lay aside every sin, which you would totally expect. Lay aside every sin. What I think he's after here is this. Some things are sins and some things are stupid. It's not necessarily a sin. It's just a really dumb idea. You got some of those, right? Like it, there's no scripture and verse for you to, you know, that says I can't do that thing. But it's not really a good idea. It's kind of holding you back. You know it's a time waster. Like, let's think about it right now. What is that thing for you? That you know is not a sin, but you know is a weight that is holding you back from Jesus. I'm gonna try to illustrate it like this. In our lives, we got two vests, okay? Most of our, what I would consider weights, the things where he says trip off weight and sin, things that aren't necessarily sinful, but are weights that are holding us down, I'd put them in two categories. There might be more, but for the sake of this lesson, I'll put them in two. There are things that I would say are things that we use for our protection. And then there are things that, like this vest, they're just for comfort. We got them both. Let's talk about the comfort things. Things that we use that are weights, they're just for comfort. They kind of like this nice fleece vest. They just kind of keep us warm. It's that extra glass of wine when you know you've already had too many. But it's a warmth. It helps take the edge off on a really hard day. That sharing of that little juicy gossip kind of makes me feel warm on the inside. Those things that, that make me feel outwardly more impressionable to other people. The time I spend making sure that all of my stuff is put together. Me changing clothes 17 times before I get ready to go to school or to work because I'm so worried about people that are most of the time, strangers who really don't care or even notice, are gonna think about what I have on. The money that I spend to have certain things that I know will maybe present a certain image to other people on the outside that really don't move the kingdom of God or help me run the way I should. There's these outward comfort things, these things that people see on the outside. And, and the thing about these is like, if I'm wearing this with this outfit, nobody's like, maybe some of you people who know fashion, I don't know. For the most part, nobody's like, that's weird, okay? It's not abrasive. It's like, oh, that's kind of normal. We all do that. There's probably some other people. There's, there's a few vests in the room, right? Yeah, there's some in here. These are just the things that are kind of like, oh, that's a given for life down here. Everybody's got some of those. The things that just keep us comfortable, the things that just keep us warm, the things that just distract us, the things that are just there. And then there are what I would call the defense weights. Ah. And these, when you put these on, a lot of times you don't realize that you've got them on. I think, man, shoulder flexibility is not my strength. Yeah, well, there it is. 
here we go. That's about how awkward they are. Okay. When you have this on, a lot of times you don't realize you have this on, but everybody else does. It's that tough exterior, that know-it-all about you. And again, it's not a sin to know a lot of facts, but when somebody says something in the break room and you're the first person to go, well, actually, okay. It's, it's your defense. If I, can, if I can always seem like I'm the smartest person in the room, I've always got a job. If I can be the know-it-all, people will come to me. And, and, and it's not always stuff like that. Sometimes it's, well, my defense mechanism is to just stay incredibly busy. Because if I can just stay super busy, and everybody else knows I'm busy, I haven't sent a text message back in 17 years to some people, you know? I haven't re responded to an email, you know? I, I, I've never been able to tell that person who invited me to do that thing, yes, I'll go do that thing, ever. And I wonder why people stop asking or inviting me to stuff. Well, it's because outwardly, everybody knows I'm just a busy one. I'm just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a chaos monster. I'm like, I'm just going out there and I'm doing these things. Now, oftentimes, we do all those things to protect ourselves from the things that we really know we should be doing. I got excuses. Well, I always have excuses. Somebody asked me to volunteer at something. Nah, I got some stuff. My kids, you know, you know, they're out there. Another way that we use things to defend this weight that we, we put on, maybe nobody else really understands it. Nobody else really realizes or sees it, but we wear this stuff to protect us and it's excuses. A lot of this is tied back to the homes we grew up in. And so we wear this defense mechanism that goes like, well, my, I just grew up in an angry house. Everybody was always angry. I'm sorry, I'm angry. My dad was just always angry. That's a weight that by the blood of Jesus, you can get rid of and run faster. A lot of times we just keep using those excuses because we don't want to work on our anger. We've all got these. Some of y'all, let me, let me, I want to free some folks up in 2024, hopefully. Some of y'all took a stupid personality test. Uh, ENTJ, a strength finder, some Ouija board, Enneagram stuff at some point, and it told you you were some certain way. Now listen, you might be, all right? But for the love of God, realize and remember that we have Bible verses like Romans 12 too. that says, don't conform to the patterns of the world anymore, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Who you are right now is not who you have to be forever. But sometimes we get those things that just say, I'm the shy one, or I'm the nervous one, or I'm super concerned, or I'm super type A. And we just put these on and we go, that's my defense mechanism so that the Holy Spirit doesn't have to sanctify this broken, messed up part of me. And listen, those are the weights by the power of God. Okay, I can let, this isn't sinful, but it's something Jesus has to get off of me if I'm gonna run this race. Now remember, if I, if I show up to run a 10K or a sprint like this, what are y'all gonna say? Is that a sin? No, it's stupid. <laughs> you're gonna be slower. You're gonna, you're gonna lose, all right? So it's getting these things off. Now, what's, what's hard about getting these things off <clears throat> is it entails vulnerability. When I had my vest on, you guys could tell or you couldn't tell if I'd gained some weight over the holidays. <laughs> now, that, now that I have it off, you can make some conclusions. I don't think I have. The scale wouldn't say that. I don't know. Maybe I've gained it in the right places. Who knows? It's not for you to judge. Quit looking at me so hard. 
the point is, the reason so many of us don't take these weights off is because our eyes are not looking at Jesus. That's why the, the wording in the passage, it just makes so much sense when you really slow down to read it. It says, take off every sin that so easily entangles in the weight that's there and, and run with perseverance the race marked out for you, looking to Jesus. Like it implies that the whole entire time you have not stopped looking at Jesus. The reason why so many of us are so afraid of taking off things that are our defense and things that are our comfort is because we're not looking at Jesus, we're looking around at everybody else and nobody else is taking off theirs. So we're not taking off ours. I'm gonna keep this thing. Mama's got it, she's got it, daddy's got it. People at work got it, I'm gonna keep mine. And, and my hope is that MCC in the years to come can be a place where people are willing to strip it off and to come in and, and to be vulnerable with each other in the contexts where that is most appropriate in small groups, in the counseling sessions that we have through our lay counseling ministry here, that people are willing to come in and admit, I do not have it all figured out. I do not have it all right. I need help to strip those things off, lay them aside, and to not try to go resuscitate those things that they are laying aside. So that's the weight. The other side is sin. Now, sin isn't as complicated. You know the sins that are holding you back. And I don't think it's any coincidences. He says in a couple of different translations, he says it's sin, sin that clings closely or easily entangles. There's a couple of different ways that phrase is translated into English. Now, what you need to understand here is you have some sin that clings close to you that just bounces right off of me. And I have some sin that bounces right off of me that clings really close to you. You need to figure out the ones that are clinging. And you need to crucify them along with your flesh. And how do we do that? Looking to Jesus. The moment I do that same sin that's been clinging so close to me, I know, listen, I know, I, I've... I have struggled with habitual sin the same way you have. Listen to me. I know the moment you do that sin and it feels like a tsunami of shame washes over you, the last place you want to look is Jesus. The last place you want to go is to the word. The last place you want to go is prayer. That's because shame has tricked you into believing the lie that just because you did something bad, you are something bad and something bad doesn't deserve a God as good as Jesus. So you run. The other night, my two incredibly competitive children were playing a game that we made up called Dad Ball. And I could go to links explaining it to you, but it only works at the Shoemake household. Anyway, it doesn't matter. My oldest, um, who God has blessed with the gift of competitiveness, was losing to his little brother. And if you're an older brother in the room, you know how bad that hurts. All right. Well, he's got one of those little foam kind of, it's not a wiffle ball bat, but it's like a foam bat hitting Nerf balls. Anyway, uh, he, 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 it's getting kind of close to the end. He knows he's going to lose. Well, he takes a bat and he just slams it on the ground. All right. And the bat breaks. It's game over. And uh, little brother obviously wins. And, and I chew his butt a little bit there in that moment and explain to him why this is bad. And, and we solved all that. He asked forgiveness for his brother. He asked forgiveness for me. He repented of the sin. All is good. About five minutes passed, and we're outside playing, and I can just see it's still on him. He goes inside. He goes up into his room. I go, boy, what's going on, man? He's like, I just, I don't know. He's, he's a boy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I know. 
And we had to have, and, and, I, and I thank God for this moment that he gave me yesterday with my boy. I said, buddy, what you feel right now is shame. And shame is always gonna make you isolate from your family. It's gonna make you run away. It's gonna make you want to feel like you need to be alone because you don't deserve to be with these people you hurt. I said, but buddy, we're family, we're blood, man. We love you, we forgive you. What we really want is for you to come back down and you to come out and play. Because despite the thing you did wrong, you're my son and you're his brother. Will you come outside? And you wash the weight lift off of people. That's, that's what we need to hear. That's what all of us need. So he says, get rid of the weight, get rid of the sin. Now, finally, he gets to this place. Run. All right? It's, act, it's step five, not step one. The point of this passage is look to Jesus, stay looking to Jesus, see who he is, stay looking to Jesus, see what he's done, stay looking to Jesus, lay aside weight and sin, stay looking to Jesus, and run with endurance. Run with endurance. See the passage? Let us, let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. I love that he doesn't write this individualistically. It's his way of saying, you will not run your race and finish your race if it's not a let us race. If it's a just let you race, Lone Ranger, get in your lane, do your thing, it won't work. It's a let us run this race with endurance. Now, again, I'm, how I preached this wrong the last time. I probably said some things like, you know, this life, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And have the endurance that you need. And you've heard those things, and, and, and I, I agree. But here's what I want to tell you that I discovered when I was actually studying what these words mean. The word run right there in this passage is, is the Greek word trexo. It's the same word, trexo, that is translated run in the prodigal son story. Now, you tell me how you think the father in the prodigal son story ran. There's my boy. All right, how's my heart rate? It's good, okay. He's out there. He stinks, I can already smell him from here. Like This is not how the father runs, right? The father is cooking it. He's moving with everything he has forward to go get his kid. And so, so I, I wanna kind of debunk this notion that this Christian life is a marathon. Here's what I would say. When you really study scripture, what you come to find is Jesus really wanted us to operate on these rhythms of grace. When he taught his disciples to pray, he said, give us this what? Day. We get in these passages and we start thinking, oh, about my 20 years, my 30 years. And because we, we hear pastors, well-meaning pastors and, and our own things and the things we hear about, like it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, so take your time. No. I'm not supposed to be concerned about what's happening out there. I'm not supposed to be concerned about who my kids are gonna marry. I'm gonna pray for that. I'm not concerned about who they're getting to college with. I'm not concerned about what the next 10 year plan for MCC is. What I believe God is more so calling us to do is sprint today. Trexo today, run today. Get, so, so I ask you this question. When you get up, when your feet hit the floor, are you running or are you drifting? Because sometimes I can think, we, we hear stuff like this, we go, oh, it's a marathon. And so, oh, it's a marathon, wow. You know, and we've heard the parable of the tortoise and the hare. And we're like, oh, tortoise mode. Boom, boom, boom. And we just trudge along, 
through life. What breaks my heart is over the course of the last couple of years, man, I've sat in my office and I've done marital counseling and premarital counseling. And I swear if I hear one more wife or wife-to-be tell me something about their husband playing video games, I'm going to punch myself in my face. <laughs> There's a reason only women are laughing right now. Here's what I mean. Let's talk to the fellows in the room. And again, this is something I've had to preach to myself. Don't hear an advocate, not someone punching you. You should not, unless you have a medical condition, men in the room, you should not struggle with sleep. Unless you've got some kind of medical condition where something's off in balance, you should have no problem going to bed at night. Men of God, we're called to wake up, sprint, trexo, Everything you got, eyes locked on Jesus, go. Wake up, do what you gotta do for your health, do what you gotta do to have your quiet time, spiritual health with God, get in the word, go do something for your body, get your mind right, go sprint at work with everything you've got, pull into your driveway, realize the most important part of your day starts then, not when you got to work, when you get home. Most important part of your day starts right then. Sprint, wrestle with your kids on the floor, go to the baseball practice, coach at Little League even though you know nothing about it. Do those things. Then come, love, put those kids to bed and have a great play time with their wife or with, with your wife. Have some fun. That, that'd be weird. Sorry, slip. Have an amazing time. Care for your wife, love your wife. If you go put the kids to bed and then you go play the video game so that you can play it without them asking when's their turn, you're failing. Go sprint, pursue your wife. I can't tell you how many marriages are failing right now because wives do not feel like they're being pursued by a husband. Sprint. And then fellas, if you're doing that right, no one is gonna have to invite you into a late night while everybody else is asleep sin. You know why? Because your butt will have been asleep by 10 p.m. Because you sprinted that day. You ran headlong after being the provider and protector of your family the way God is really calling you to. So men in this room, I'm telling you, make the changes that you need to make. Adjust where you, I, I, I've, I've counseled some, some guys on this before. They're like, I'm just having a really, a really hard time sleeping at night. So wake up at five. You won't. Wake up at five, work out. It, don't overcomplicate it, guys. Throw off the weight. Some of the weight is the excuse. Well, I just don't, you know. I gotta, no, throw the, is that, that going to help you run? Then throw it away. Run. And to all the rest of us in the room, when it comes to this race, know that what God has given you, man or woman, is he has given you grace for this day. He's given you daily bread for this day. He's given you everything you need for this day. Sometimes I, I think we get so focused on what is next that we miss out on what God has given us right now. He's giving you what you need to run this race with endurance right now. So look, you wake up, look to Jesus, see who he is, see what he's done. And then maybe that day, I'm just giving you a plan here. Go, what weight needs to get off of me today? What, what stuff that I've already taken off is creeping back in? What sin is clinging that I need to repent of? And then you go run that race that he's marked out for you with endurance. And then around 1030, you should be doing everything possible 
to just keep your eyes open. You should be about asleep. And then you close your eyes. You go to sleep. And you wake up with a little bit more endurance than you had the day before because you're learning how to sprint toward your Savior day by day. That's why we rest at night. It's where you recuperate. It's where your body replenishes those natural resources. It's where God says, okay, that was the grace for that day right there. I'm going to give you the grace for the next day when you wake up. And I'm only going to give you enough grace for today. So one of these commitments I've been trying to make for my life is, is Jesus Obviously, he's given us saving grace and then sustaining grace. Saving grace is the grace that he gives us upon our faith and trust in him, and that's going to echo on into eternity. But I believe Jesus gives us a certain amount of sustaining grace every single day. My, my, my goal for 2024, and I'd love it if some people would join me in on this, is I don't want to end any day of my life this year with any bit of sustaining grace left on the table. And my prayer is that you would be a church that would go after that. That we would be a people who the world can look on and see there's something different in that people. I want to help you run. I'm going to give you a little bit of homework as we end today. Sorry. If you want to run well, we got to figure out weights and sins. Because these are things we got to get off of us. Okay? What I would encourage you to do, and you can, you can take a picture of this on your phone, uh, of the big screens. You can even start a note in your phone. Uh, maybe even do this during communion. Just start right now. Like, don't, don't wait till you get home and go get a quiet place. I would encourage you to go maybe do that. Take a time, set some time aside to go be with God tomorrow morning, some morning this week, and write this out. Just start listing out the weights. And again, these are things that, this is social media. This is, you know, cable TV. This is, you know, stupid gossip. Some of you, this weight may be a job. It's not sinful for you to have that job, but you know it is weighing you down. It's keeping you from running the route that he's just calling you to run. Uh, middle school and high schoolers, you can't put school up here. Sorry, that's not allowed. Um, but you know your weights. And then also put the sins. Now, some of you, you're gonna knock out these weights quick. You're going to need to start a new card. Don't think, oh, I got my 10 weights off. I'm good to go. No, stuff's going to keep creeping in. And then there's sins. You need to put those out there too. Now, I'm not guaranteeing you anything. But I can tell you from experiencing this, even in my own life, having started to do this, is, and I, I did not make this connection until I actually wrote this out and was able to see it on paper. This is why I encourage you to do this. Please, please, please do this. The more I started to cut these things on this side out, and you're right, I'm not showing you my card. The more and more I started to get these off, the more and more these started to come off. What I found was like, man, I've been struggling with sin three for four years. Come to find out the combination of dealing with sin three was cutting out weight one, three, and nine. And this one doesn't even bother me anymore. And I'm telling you, look, these are the, the, the secret things of the walk of God that Satan wants to keep hidden from you. He wants to, like I said a couple of weeks ago, if Satan cannot get you disobedient, he wants you distracted. Here's a question for you. Do you have a long enough attention span to do something like this? I believe you do. I believe the Holy Spirit will help you. And I believe that this plan can help you run a race in 2024 allows you to go further and faster with Jesus than you ever have before. So today, as you get ready to receive communion, 
pray that as you see this communion in your hand, that you understand that it is the broken body of Christ and his poured out blood for you. In the same way that this passage tells us to lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles, I want you to understand that when Jesus went to the cross, that he was stripped bare, laid fully vulnerable for the world to see a dying man for me and you. And that there upon that cross, he is bearing the full weight of sin. What hurt, the, what hurt at the crucifixion the most was not nails and thorns and whips. What hurt the most at the cross was the father turning his face away from his son. Jesus experiencing for the first time ever distance between his father so that you could feel closeness to the father. And I pray as you commune with him today, you feel that closeness. You look to Jesus, you see who he is, what he's done. You even here in these moments, ask him to begin revealing to you the weight and the sin and lock eyes. And here's what's awesome. You can stay seated right there and know that your heart is running a dead sprint towards your savior. You don't gotta move a muscle. You gotta get up and you can sprint. Some of you here today, you've never started that race. You've never taken step one to look to Jesus and see who he is and what he's done. And, and today I would invite you to toe the line, to see him as a savior who gave his life for you, that you would put your faith and trust in him for the first time, that you would look to him and that you would receive his invitation to new life as you lay your old life aside. Let him be not just your savior, but also your Lord of your life to come. If you wanna put your faith and trust in Christ today, I'd invite you to do that to make that faith evident by taking what I believe oftentimes is the first step in this race directly into the waters of baptism. If you're here today, you wanna to give your life to Christ, you wanna be baptized, you can mark that on the card or you can come see me uh, back there in the back as the song plays after communion. See him. Look to Jesus, church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth is only found in your word. Help us, Jesus, to stop looking at other places, at other things, even at other people, to see what you alone can give us. Father, I pray that you would let us, the people of MCC, run this race you've marked out for us. As we commune with you today, begin to reveal to us the weight and sin that we need to cast aside, throw away, and forgive us for the time where we've tried to resurrect old weights and old sins. Let us let them die and stay dead. Jesus, we praise you for not being the one who would stay dead, but rising again so that we have life, we have hope to make it through what we're going through. In your name.